Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Stephen Hansen, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's podcast, surviving a year of the haves and have-nots. Insights from BioCentury's 2023 financial markets preview. And that will include some buy-sider picks from BioCentury's 31st annual buy-side view, which we release this time of year, every year. And we'll have more takeaways from a somewhat quiet, very soggy, but delightfully in-person JP Morgan. I am happy to report now that everyone has left my fair Bay Area, we have our first sunny day since, I don't know, December 21st. Apart from that very brief, brief window of sun on the eve of JP Morgan. But before we get into all of that, this week's BioCentury podcast is brought to you by our 23rd BioEquity Europe Conference. It's scheduled for May 14th to 16th in Dublin, Ireland. We invite you to join BioCentury and EBD Group at this exclusive event for CEOs, investors, and biotech decision makers. Don't wait to register last year's conference, which was in Milan, completely sold out. Learn more on our website, bioequityeurope.com, early bird rate through February 10th. All righty, let me bring in Stephen. Stephen, terrible year for biotech. Last year, fourth quarter, we saw a little bit of a rebound, at least in some of the stocks. I'm curious, are investors more optimistic headed into 2023? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I think the short answer is uh, sort of. (laughs) Um, And what I mean by that is that from my discussions, there's pretty broad consensus that 2023 is not going to see sort of the broader biotech indices kind of revisit their their bottoms that we saw last May. You know, a lot of people think that we've seen the bottom now. And now the question is, how long is sort of this tail going to be for the sector? And a lot of that right now is really macro driven. A lot of discussion around macro, interest rates being the primary thing that folks wanted to talk about, you know, saying basically that rising interest rate environments, people don't like risk, biotech, one of the riskiest sectors. And so therefore, there's this this risk off view. And so that really is is kind of what's driving it now when people are essentially saying, you know, well, once we start to see interest rates start to level off, then you could see sort of a return of the incremental buyer into the sector. But the big question that nobody knows the answer to is when that's going to happen. But there is some optimism that, you know, the sector should outperform to some degree this year. The question is just when that's going to start and by how much. All right. And what about financings? What are expectations for that coming back this year? Sure. And and so this is where I think a lot of that risk appetite kind of plays into it because as you said, you read this the title of the of, of the story was sort of the have and the have nots. And that was the sense that again, almost everyone sort of said is that if if you're a company where you have had clinical data that has de-risked your programs sufficiently, or you have a catalyst upcoming that can de-risk your programs. There is interest, and I think we've seen that in the fourth quarter. If you know, if you look at some of the stock moves post clinical data, 
we've mentioned these maybe before, but like the Madrigal Nash data, the Prometheus data, there, there are numerous examples where you saw sort of real strong buy from the investor side after positive data. And so I think, you know, the feeling is that there is money out there that's looking for new ideas and that if you have a de-risked asset post-data, there's plenty of money to come into that. The problem, I think, will be for the companies that are short of cash and don't have a catalyst upcoming. And that's where the survival bit, I think, really comes in. Yeah, I heard really similar things from Kieran Reddy, who is the Senior Managing Director at Blackstone Life Sciences on last week's Biocentury show. He called it a year of hot and cold, Stephen. He talked about this as a year that, you know, 2022 was this big shock and 2023 is like digesting that. But he really reiterated the point that you were making. And he cited like Prometheus, which had good data in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's that was very robust, superior in the refractory patient population and was rewarded, right, mm -hmm. the, by the markets. But he talked about Gossamer, where their efficacy data actually you know, they showed clinical efficacy, but it didn't meet expectations. And so they got punished yeah. in the, the public markets. And, and what he said is that both of those companies might have commercially successful drugs, but there's no nuance in this market, he said. That's the reality of where we are. So the markets, if you don't meet expectations, but you work, that, that's not really going to be very good for you. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree in the sense that I think there's a lot of selectivity, I think, is another way of sort of thinking is that investors are going to be pretty discerning about those sort of catalysts, sort of post money that, that they're willing to go into. And so what I think what it means for some of these companies, if you don't have, you know, a major sort of value inflection point sort of upcoming soon, I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the private sort of public hedge funds and others, I mean, said that they're looking at a ton of pipes. You've got, you know, sort of other registered directs. You've got royalty financing. I mean, there's all these sort of alternative things that we've been sort of discussing all year long that I think are really heating up. And it sounds like there's more and more discussions going on there. Just unfortunately, I think management teams are going to be faced with the fact that it's going to be pretty punitive, right? I mean, there's going to be some of these terms that are not going to be nice. I mean, we've seen companies raise... I think it was Autolist we put in the story that had raised 150 million at a 200 million dollar valuation, which is not something that you want to do. But the point there is that, I mean, if you look, so we did an analysis. We looked back at sort of the companies that survived the financial crisis, you know, made it through the 0809 period into 010, and then sort of looked at their performance then for the following three years through 2013, and you know, you see this fairly broad recovery that does happen. But you have to survive to the point to be able to participate in that recovery. And that was another message that I think came through pretty strongly is that a lot of investors, while we all know that cash is important, cash is always a very clear focus for you know a sector that we all know burns a ton of cash. But in, in this sort of market, investors were even more so pointing to the fact that, look, we just want our companies to be able to survive to the point to where they can then participate in what we think is going to be a growing, broad recovery in the coming years. And so to participate in that, you, you know, you need to be around was really the main message. I mean, I'll tell you that what you've done, it you tapped into, you know, one of the things that I just kept hearing over and over last week at JP Morgan was this use of creative, right? Companies are going to get easier. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to have creative financing, creative deals. So, you know, it's a right. bit of a catch-all word. Royalty, we've already seen some royalty 
financing structures and a, and a readjustment. But yeah, keep an eye out for creative here. All right. So I know uh, you wrote, of course, cash is still king. And it sounds like what the expectation is, Stephen, is biotech should, could, maybe might recover more broadly starting in another year, 2024, 2025. Is that, is that kind of in line with what you heard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's kind of what we're, what the broad, not sure if I could say consensus, it, probably at this point, it's probably still a little more hope. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and that that was, again, sort of the point of really trying to survive through this and, and make it through this market is so that you can you can be around to hopefully participate in what should hopefully then be a, a more accepting market for uh, for biotech stories. All right, Stephen, thanks for that. I'd like to bring Selena in now. She was one of the uh, authors, along with Edwin Zhang, on our buy side view, where we go off and talk to a dozen or more buy siders about what they're excited about. And Selena and Edwin found that despite this extended downturn, investors are still seeing plenty of milestones to drive excitement this year. Selena, what are investors excited about? Thanks, Jeff. So, like you said, uh, cash is still king, but something that may not be king this year for for a first time in a long time might be oncology. Okay, that's a bit that's a little cheeky on my part, but obviously it's still going to be a major focus for a long time. But within this collection of biociders, we happen to interview selection caveats, you know, bias caveats aside. When normally these conversations at the start of the year would be dominated by talk of cancer programs or new modalities for cancer or new targets for cancer, this and that, they were a little less about cancer this year. And I think there's a kind of feeling that bispecifics and ADCs, these modalities where we've seen really great progress in recent years, that, that's going to plot along and continue. But the next cutting edge technologies, something that could be transformational, like an allogeneic T-cell therapy for example, is just going to need more time. So there's tons of interest there still, but maybe not 2023 story. So what themes did emerge then? Like there were a lot of the conversations were about gene therapy. Obviously we saw really important regulatory approvals last year for gene therapies, showing that, you know, FDA <clears throat> is willing to approve these and they don't have to be for the smallest niche indications. They can be a bit bigger. So presumably they can get the indications can get bigger still. And now 2023 is going to be a test of their commercial success. And you've written about this, Lauren. It's also going to test the role of value-based contracts. Do you want to talk about that? I think everyone's expecting these gene therapies to get off to a relatively slow start too. So I don't know exactly how much of an indication of peak commercial potential we'll have this year for some of these products. But I think we will start to see more come out about the value-based contracts that are signed and um, how companies are going to work with payers to get these really expensive drugs on the market. So three of the approvals last year were the three most expensive drugs ever approved. And I also thought there's a table published in the story with milestones for this year. And I thought there were some really interesting upcoming gene therapy milestones beyond the commercial angle. The first potential approval of a gene therapy for DMD, and we follow that story really closely. There are some interesting safety issues with DMD, so I think that'll be one that everyone's going to pay attention to. And you also have the Biomarin hemophilia A gene therapy that's up for approval. And this would be the biggest indication for that modality that we've 
yet seen on the market. So just, you know, digging into a couple of threads that have come up there, starting with what you just said, I think it's really important for gene therapies that we start to see them in these indications with larger populations, not just the very niche ones. And that's going to be important for the pricing. That's going to be just important for the understanding the technology and, and how useful it can be. And at the same time, we are coming and we've seen this before into like a showdown of modalities, right? Is it going to be, you know, pitting your gene therapy versus are they RNAi or oligotherapies in, in certain diseases, which aren't necessarily the big ones? Um, they may be more smaller population orphan diseases. But you get an opportunity really to pit this modality versus that one. And I assume that will parlay into the conversation about how much you can charge for a gene therapy it has to be really a whole lot better, I suppose, than something that's delivered, let's say, every six months, every year. I know some of the RNAIs want to do. So I think that it's going to be an important area to watch. And it, it is, frankly, Selena, I, I'm kind of interested at the idea that cancer can take sort of a second uh, second seat, a silver position, maybe to some of these, these other areas this year. It, it is kind of nice to see some different diseases, you know, taking yeah, so So quickly, some of those other areas will, of course, be continued interest in Alzheimer's as we get more data on the amyloid hypothesis from Eli Lilly this time and Donanamab. There's a whole lot of interest in obesity that's continuing to grow. You've been following that, Stephen. Do you want to weigh in on the on the obesity interest? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's still sort of a commercial story from the kind of the two leaders being Lilly and Novo kind of being, you know, the market leader having Wagovi uh, semaglutide that has seen pretty, pretty remarkable uptake for obesity. Um, but obviously now Lilly coming out with their GIP and GLP-1 agonist um, terzepatide being approved for diabetes, but is in phase three for obesity. And I think a lot of this stuff is both drugs, I think, are going to be getting used off-label for obesity a lot, or terzepatide right now will be getting used off-label for obesity. So um, I think it'll be really interesting to track the sales trajectory for those drugs this year. Okay, so on the clinical front, when you when you talk about Wagovi, there is data, more data coming this year, um, this time from CV Outcomes that's right. um, trial. So that's that's one that a couple of investors pointed out as, in fact, I think Marshall Gordon <laughs> called it mission critical, that it showed mm. that it can not just cause weight loss, but protect against these bad outcomes. Yeah. And and I think that's where obesity, you know, is going to, I think you're going to see a lot of parallels to what we saw with diabetes, right? And that you need to show just beyond the weight loss, you need to be able to show that you're having a positive benefits for patients in other sort of morbidities that, that come along with obesity, right? So that'll be important to show that you can show this in the same way that they've shown that in diabetes. I just think we can't overstate the importance of this. You know, this is a massive, massive mm. problem globally. And if these drugs work as well as they seem to, and I know there's, you know, people taking them by private payments or off-label, there's even problems at the moment with supply chain, you know, with the supply of them. They can't make enough of it. <laughs> they can't make yeah. enough of them. They, they, they do work and how well they work, we'll find out. But, you know, this was almost the sleeper story, right? It was just sort of trundling along and exploded, let's say last year after mm. years of people saying, don't invest there. So I just feel that there's, I, I feel like of all the things we've heard that at a national and international level is really the most exciting. 
And I think what will be interesting this year to see is given the focus that it's receiving, the attention it's receiving, and, and the fact that it's, you know, these two large players, I'm, I'm just going to be curious to see how much growth we see on the small sort of either on the private side or on the sort of small cap biotech side, because obesity is a hard, I mean, this is a hard setting to get into, right? I mean, it takes a lot of patience. It's a pretty big investment up front. So I'll be curious to see, we haven't yet really seen a lot of that on, on the small company side. So curious if any investors take that on. You have to hope that the dam's been broken with this, though, right? That, you know, now you've got proof of principle, something can work. And then the question is, like, how much data do they need in these massive indications before they're, they become a viable partner, these smaller companies? Right. And yeah. presumably, at some point, they're going to start segmenting the population and sort of doing more targeted things. So I don't know. I'm going to be surprised if we don't see an uptick in uh, investment in new technologies or companies in this area. So we'll be watching for that, Stephen. Um, Stephen and Selena, sorry. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, one more thing from the bystander pick story uh, was IGA nephropathy. So I think this is kind of a story of how the power of having an established accelerated approval endpoint, a surrogate endpoint. So, you know, FDA accepted, um, I think it was in 2021, for the first time, proteinuria as a surrogate endpoint for accelerated approval. And now we have a bunch of milestones coming up this year. Well, we already saw one, right, with Vera, though. Uh, that, uh, I guess, investors were a little lukewarm there, or more than lukewarm. Stock fell 65% after those data. But I Take it, Selena, that's due to the next milestone that's coming up. Is that from Trevere? Okay, right. So Tarpeo, when it was approved, being the first one approved on this endpoint, saw about a 34% reduction in proteinuria. And Vera saw, I want to say it was 31%. It was very, that's it, was right. com- it, was comp- it was comparable. So I don't think, you know, those weren't so far off. But the next one coming up, yeah, from Trevere, that is under review right now with a PDUFA date in February. And in its phase three trial, it had a larger effect. I think it was closer to a 50% reduction. So that stock reception may have had something to do with the comparison to Trevere. Yes. And uh, Trevere, of course, has another milestone coming up this year, two-year EGFR data from a phase three trial in FSGS, which is another rare kidney disease. Yeah, I know. I know kidney diseases um, have been getting hotter. So um, another space to watch. All right. Thank you for that, Selena. Uh, The buy side view, uh, along with financial markets preview up on biocentry.com. You can also find Simone's conversation with Kieran Reddy on the Biocentry show on our website. That is free with registration. I'd like to turn back to deals, uh, particularly of the JPM variety. Last week, we talked about how multiple 10-figure M&A transactions showed demand for later stage candidates, marketed drugs, with the potential for some label expansions. Uh, European companies were the big buyers, uh, albeit we did not see the sort of signature deal that we've seen in past years that have served to energize the sector. But I know, Lauren, uh, you were tracking a series of smaller deals. What were you looking at? 
So I'm not sure what conclusions you can draw from them, but among the small set of research collaborations that were announced last week, there was a bit of a concentration around RNA and um, related technologies. There were some interesting deals involving RNA delivery, I thought. There was a collaboration between Ginkgo and Procarium that was using bacteria to deliver mRNA therapies. There was another one between Matinas and Resilience that was testing oral lipid nanoparticles uh, for delivery of different nucleic acids. And then there was one between Bayer and Recode that we uh, wrote about that was not specific to RNA, but I think it was for uh, different gene editing technologies, which do include delivering RNA components uh, often, and um, DNA cargo that used organ-targeted LMPs. Um, so, you know, trying to move this technology that's been relatively validated for liver targeting to more efficiently target tissues outside of the liver. Thanks for that, Lauren. I know that's a, a space you'll continue to watch in the months ahead. Uh, Simone, I'm curious. I know you were uh, hopping all over the place last week in San Francisco. Any other scuttlebutt you were hearing on M&A? So scuttlebutt here and there on various things, but starting with M&A, I do think it's an interesting era. So everybody knows that companies are going to be looking towards M&A because there's no money out there, basically. And this is a, a way they can uh, get their programs funded and taken forward. And, you know, M&A obviously is acquisitions. There's obviously partnerships. But on both the partnership and the M&A front, the, the land has shifted. So first of all, it is now a buyer's market, right? And this is what I'm hearing from like the farmer partnering um, folks that it's now a buyer's market and the companies, the smaller companies haven't necessarily really adjusted to that yet. So we've sort of heard that they're still like a little bit in shell shock over the idea that their valuation isn't what it used to be. And that sort of still, you, you know, that, that message is still trickling down. And the same is going on at the M&A front in how a company is being valued and how much it can call the shots itself. But actually, companies are getting a double whammy because on the one hand, they're sort of talking with farmers and suddenly realizing, A, they don't have the upper hand and their valuations are lower than they might have thought or might have wanted them to be. But separately than that, the IRA is actually now trickling into these negotiations. And of course, I'm talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and the fact that you know, pharma companies are starting to model in the returns that they're going to get on assets, especially early stage assets, right, that are in the pipeline and small companies are still walking around in some level of denial going, well, that doesn't really matter to me because I'm only preclinical. I don't need to think about that. They do need to think about that because the pharma companies are thinking about that as they model it. And as they take their assets either into partnering or their companies into M&A, that is now part of the equation and something they need to be thinking about. Related to that, I moderated a panel at the Biotech Showcase on the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, I had some great panelists there who really did talk about the fact that companies haven't yet completely 
absorbed uh, these messages and they need to develop a plan. One thing that struck me that was an interesting development there is there's been a lot of talk about the fact that small molecules are given nine years before Inflation Reduction Act kind of provisions will kick in versus 13 years for large molecules. And we know, and one of the questions I asked the panelists is sort of, of all the things that might change between now and let's say over the next few years in this act, because the act is likely to get modified, what are they looking at? And so Alex Harding, who is the head of business development at CRISPR Therapeutics, recently as of the beginning of this year, he of course answered, you know, the difference between small molecules and large molecules, that nine versus 13 years. So I pointed out to Alex that what's going on there is the manufacturers of large molecules are saying, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, don't change that, shut up about that, because all they're going to do is change 13 down to nine, <laughs> or somewhere in the middle, rather than increase the nine for small mm -hmm. molecules to 13. And Alex had a great answer, I thought. He said, look, whatever it is, it is, but there shouldn't be a difference, because what you've got now is an incentive outside of the science for while you'll pick one modality over the other. And you need to be making these decisions based only on the science and what is the best product for patients and not on what is the timing of reimbursement. And I thought that was a really good answer. Other than that, so my take home from JP Morgan is, yeah, there's still a lot of denial and shell shock over the IRA. We've talked about this. Buzzword is creative thinking for financing and deals. <laughs> and um, I think probably, you know, Jeff, you referred at the beginning of this to the excitement and energy over being able to meet in person. But even beyond that, I'm still seeing just this huge energy of the level of innovation in the industry and the number of things that are going on and things that there are to invest in. So investors are still spoiled for choice. And however hard this is for the industry and for small biotechs, probably better that it's that way around than the other way around. There's <laughs> not enough to invest in. So innovation is, is still really marching forward. Great, great place to end it on. Simone, Stephen, Selena, Lauren, thank you for your insights. And everyone out there tuning in, thanks for tuning in. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>